Hey, hey, Housers, Michael Braithwaite here from Blue Door. Welcome to another episode of On The Way Home. We always have amazing guests and today is no exception. Before I get to that guest, just a reminder, this podcast is brought to you by the good folks at Blue Door, where I work across uh, Peel, York and Durham, just north of Toronto. We do amazing work and have for over 40 years. Uh, serving our most vulnerable, helping them with housing, health care, getting them into uh, well-paying jobs that lift them out of poverty in our construct program, and much, much more. Uh, hats off to the over 100 people working so hard, the front frontline heroes there that are doing great work. And in partnership with the Canadian Alliance and Homelessness, hey, you know what? They just released, and by the time you get this, it will be uh, kind of old news, but they did release all their different speakers that are going to be at their conference in Halifax, uh, in the fall check it out what a lineup man like crazy we're gonna have a lot of them on the show before to chat about with uh, all the stuff they're doing so it's really cool check that out and much more they have all sorts of different resources uh, and ways that they could get involved in your community and help you become a built for zero community go to caeh.ca and check that out and if you want to check out blue door and some of the cool stuff we're doing go to bluedoor.ca awesome well, let's talk about today's guest Today, I have uh, Jack Brasser, and Jack is a consultant, a researcher, an educator, an advocate uh, from a young age, too, and, and, and they've won uh, all sorts of awards for that. And we talk a lot about uh, Jack's career path. Uh, Jack grew up in Yellowknife and now resides in Saskatchewan, and we talk a little bit about what does homelessness look like uh, in Yellowknife. Uh, it looks a little different in the North and how people support each other and some of the challenges there. Uh, we talk about why advocacy for the 2S LGBTQ plus community is so important. Uh, we talk about the rise, unfortunately, you know, although uh, we see this awesome groundswell of support across the country through all these different pride parades and events, there's still a groundswell, unfortunately, of uh, hate and harassment that we see coming from the South, our neighbors in the South and in, in, into parts of Eastern Canada. And we talk about why that's happening, what we can do to, to stem that and much, much more, why there's a need for specific housing programs for 2S LGBTQ plus youth like we have in uh, York region called Inclusion, IN Inclusion and Alberta. Um, others are, are running that as well um, with host homes programs. But, uh, you know, why is there a need for those? And we talked about the program that they started uh, with the, the University of Regina uh, when they were working at a nonprofit there. It's a great conversation, really rich, uh, and, and it's so interesting. This podcast is about education, awareness, uh, and, and growing that, and we do that and more. Chuck is a great guest, uh, phenomenal, and really, really uh, fun and uh, interesting. So I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Let's go to that conversation on the way home. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Michael. Really excited for the conversation today. Yeah, my, I am. I'm excited about it as well. Um, we, of course, we always do like a pre-chat, listeners, before uh, before we get on here. And, and aside from the questions I thought I'd have, there's many, many more. So uh, eager to get on with the conversation. But before I do, we ask everyone the same question that comes on the show. Because it's a little personal to everyone who comes on. And that is, uh, what does home mean to you? Yeah, I mean, I think that for me, uh, home is so deeply tied to where I grew up, where I was born and raised in Yellowknife. Yellowknife will always be home to me, even if I don't live there full time. Um, but the thing about 
the North, and I'm and I'm hoping that sort of listeners who are also from Northern communities can speak to this, is that there's sort of this this like unconditional sense of just care and support and and love um, of uh, you know, you, you take care of each other, even if you hate, even if you hate them, even if you think that like what they're doing is bad or, you know, that they're, you know, you don't get along with them. You just take care of them and you have that responsibility. And I think that that's why we see, um, in Northern, I mean, in Yellowknife, we've seen situations of people's homes burning down and raising like hundreds of thousands of dollars. Well, Yellowknife is a a city of like 20,000 people. Like, so to raise that kind of money, um, but, but I think that that, to me, is really, when I think about home, those are the things I think about, of, like, unconditional love, of feeling safe and protected. Um, and I think that home, in terms of, as a city, right, and sort of feeling like a place is home, like a city is home for me, um, I think that that, 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 a, that a physical home, or sort of when we talk about our home with our family or um, that that's sort of a microcosm of that. Like, you know, when someone, and when we think about houselessness or homelessness um, being, people can have homes without having houses and people can have, can be in houses without having a home um, because it might not include those things like unconditional love and protection and care. Um, And so when I think about home for me, that's what it means, feeling safe and loved unconditionally um, and being able to live as my authentic self um, in my community. Amazing. I I love what you're saying there about community. Uh, One of the mistakes that uh, I've made over the course of my career with some organizations is we are so eager to house people when we forget about the community part and they don't have a sense of community, they may end up back in emergency shelter housing that because they had a sense of community there, they had, you know, 25 buddies and staff that cared and, and they formed a family and then we put them out on their own. But yes, you have four walls and a door and a key to your front door, but that sense of community is not there. So so fortunately, Jack, we've grown a little bit and we, we learn. And, and so we have workers afterwards that are really focused on connecting people with community. So uh, love that answer. And, and let's talk just a little bit about Yellowknife. Uh, you know, when you say it, it, home, uh, homelessness, or, and I, and I know you, you've been a clear say, look, I'm not an expert, but it's a little different, say, in the North. And I love what you're saying now. People really look, because of, and I don't mean to put words in your mouth, is that like the lack of resources sometimes you really have to, you're kind of pushed to lean on each other? Yeah, I mean, I think that that's true, but I also think that like housing and home and look so different in the North. I think. Um, and again, you know, as I said, I'm not an expert on this. There's tons of folks in the Northwest Territories who could probably speak way more uh, as an expert on the conversation of houselessness. But for instance, like there are people who live out on the land and that is, and they don't have sort of, you know, they don't have four walls and a door. They have a tent and fuel um, and they live full time on the land or they have, they have their hunting, you know, their, they have like their hunting cabin that they live in, in the winter. And then they live out on the land in tents over the, over the summer. So, I mean, I think too, you know, uh, uh, there, there was a story years ago in Yellowknife with, um, NW, I think it was NWT housing or another sort of Northern, um, housing organization, like government sort of funding, refusing to fund, um, 
somebody didn't didn't pay rent, but they had they had their own cabin or, or home that they just needed to heat with fuel. Um, but it wasn't a traditional utility. It wasn't rent. It wasn't a mortgage. And so they they argued with the government for for a long time to say, no, this is actually how I need you to provide me a home. Um, but I think that the other impacts in the Northwest Territories and in Yellowknife specifically is that the majority, I think it's something like 80% of housing, of like rental housing is owned by the same company. Um, and that company is not Northern. That's a, that's a company based in, I think, in Alberta. And so you have these small, um, smaller landlords. Um, and listen, like I'm not known as someone who defends landlords very often. Um, but I think that, uh, but I do think that there's work being done by Northern people in, in Yellowknife that I'm familiar with, you know, who are trying to keep ownership of homes, rental units in the North, because to your, you know, as we were talking about community, um, it's really, uh, it's really hard to refuse housing to people when those are the people that you see every day in your community. Um, and so, so yeah, I mean, I, I think that houselessness in the Northwest Territories uh, looks looks very different than it looks in other places, um, and uh, and it's something that I think has informed the way that I see ho- houselessness, um, and I see my own my own responsibility just as like a person, not even as someone who does housing work, because I don't, just as someone who lives in community. Um, and people are my neighbors and my community members, whether or not they have a house address or not. Um, and, and, and so I think just being in the North has sort of shaped, and my, my growing up in the North has sort of shaped the way that I understand neighbor or community member. Um, Whereas I think a lot of people sort of think about like, you know, who has an address in the neighborhood? Well, no, the person who, you know, tents out uh, in one of the alleys behind my house, that person is my neighbor too. Very cool. Thanks for sharing. Let's talk a little bit about you and, and you've won numerous awards, which and I don't mean to embarrass you, but you've won all sorts of awards. Uh, <laughs> I've read that it's in your family history. Uh, how the heck did you get into all this work? Can you tell us a little bit about your journey and, and, how you sure. got started in, in your advocacy work? Yeah, well, I mean, I think, um, you know, I was actually, I was not uh, raised by people who I knew as advocates. My par- I did not think of my parents as activists. My parents are longtime educators. Um, they were teachers in the Northwest Territories. They moved up to the Northwest Territories from Saskatchewan, which is where I ended up, ironically enough. Um, but uh, they were teachers and principal, you know, my mom was a principal of a elementary school that was one of um, sort of the, the one of the poorest elementary schools in Yellowknife in terms of like their, the population of students. My dad was a high school teacher for 30, about 30 years um, where he um, mostly, you know, he taught math for a long time, but then ended up working in sort of in like the in running the independent study program um, where overwhelmingly we saw um, he saw students with um, unique needs or who couldn't make it work in a traditional classroom. Um, and Yellowknife is a small place. There's only two high schools. There's a Francophone school for K to 12, but sort of the, the two main high schools. And so 
I was raised by parents um, who regularly brought kids home to eat dinner with us, to sleep on our couch um, because they didn't have anywhere to go. Um, and uh, I, I was, I was lucky enough to be raised by parents who I think, and, and this is sort of when I say, like, I didn't think of them as activists. I just sort of saw them as people living their values, um, where my parents are incredibly generous people and are thoughtful about, um, about what they have and how they can support community members with it. And so, um, yeah, I was raised with just like, we fed, you know, we provided food, we fed the kids that didn't have access to food at home. We, um, my parents adopted um, or sort of fostered uh, a teenager when I was in high school and he became my brother. Um, and, and so seeing sort of this, like, you know, put like walking the walk, right. And not necessarily just um, let's donate money to the homeless shelter. Let's donate money to this cause. It was actually like, how do we open up our home to people? Um, and I think that I was, I was raised with those values, which has now shaped when I, when I thought about what I wanted to do for a living. Um, I originally thought I wanted to be a teacher because I wanted to help people. And then I realized that you, could uh, help people without having to mark things. Uh, and so I decided to go to school to be a social worker, um, which was a really great experience. I did my training mostly in the Northwest Territories. Um, that program doesn't exist anymore, but at the time there was a social work, sort of a Northern social work training program. Um, but then as I got more into social work uh, and started to understand more about the ways that social workers have been complicit in a lot of violence against communities, I started thinking, well, like, do I want to work as a social worker at an institution? And so now I actually, I'm an unaffiliated social worker. I don't work, uh, I don't practice social work for any, for any organization or community um, or like government or community group, but I've chosen to maintain my license because I think that community social workers and just social workers who give back to community is really important. So um, even as I, you know, I was, I was a nonprofit executive administrator for a long time. I now run my own business, but I've, I've explicitly sort of chosen to maintain my registration as a social worker, because I think that there's that, that term and that sort of credential like offers a lot of legitimacy in spaces and so I'm happy to have a number of people in community who call on me when they need um, an advocate um, who is unaffiliated with any type of organization but is still bound by a certain code of ethics so I don't know that's a little bit about my story now no, it's great and tell me about the work you're doing now it's, it's Ivy Dean Consulting or is it Ivy Plus Dean or yeah it's Ivy and Dean Consulting that's my consulting practice and um I started this practice um, after working for a decade in the nonprofit sector, mostly within like equity and sort of equity-based nonprofits. I most I mostly worked in the LGBTQ um, nonprofit sector and um, in Saskatchewan, doing that work in Saskatchewan and in the Northwest Territories. And uh, I just found it really frustrating anytime I had to hire a consultant who, uh, if they understood nonprofit stuff and equity, they were often from Toronto or Vancouver or Montreal and they didn't understand my reality doing community work in small places, small and rural places. Um, or I could hire someone local, but they didn't have my values, right? Saskatchewan is not known as like a very progressive place. Um, 
so they either like I had hired someone local, but they didn't know my value. They didn't share my values, um, and they didn't understand the nonprofit sector. They were sort of more generalist. So I decided to start my business a couple of years ago, um, and when I told uh, some sort of mentors of mine that I wanted to start a consulting practice that was openly queer and openly leftist in Saskatchewan, I was told that I was crazy. Um, and that that wouldn't work very well, but there's actually been, um, a lot of people who've sort of open offered us open arms. Um, and we've been doing really, really phenomenal work, um, it, it, across the province around sort of, um, bringing equity informed approaches to like nonprofit leadership and programming and governance. So we end up doing a lot of community engagement and consultation with communities for our clients, um, around, um, sort of gauging how there's serving their community and if they're doing that in a way that's meaningful. Construct, a social enterprise by Blue Door, provides high-quality residential and commercial construction and property services in the greater Toronto area. More than a business with a heart, Construct is a real solution to preventing and ending homelessness. Through its eight-week paid skills trades training program, complete with wraparound supports and on-the-job work experience, Construct lifts people out of poverty and into opportunity. To hire Construct for your next project or learn more about Construct's employment program, visit constructgta.ca. Let's talk a little bit more about that community engagement. You and I were talking uh, pre-podcast around uh, with the groups that when you're trying to engage people uh, without a home, a little bit of a different approach. Can you talk a little bit about that and, and, and kind of what? Yeah, well, like, I think that like, you know, traditional consultants, anytime that we do some type of community engagement, people talk about like surveys, right? They're like, oh, let's like, you know, get, let's do like, we'll do a, we'll do an online, dis, you know, Zoom discussion group, or we'll host a focus group at this, you know, at this like, bo- in this boardroom at this building. Um, and we'll, you know, and oh, how are we going to get the word out? We're going to put it on social media or we're going to put out a press release. Um, But all of those sort of traditional ways of collecting that information um, are rooted in, I think, an extraction um, rather than reciprocity and building relationships. And so I think our company, um, I think my company has found some success in the way that we approach a lot of those things. So one of those things includes the, the key way that we collect really great information about whether or not an organization is serving its community is through hosting like activities and community events. So we host like a, like a free swim night, uh, to, uh, and people came to the swim night and enjoyed the free swimming. But then on their way out, we were like, Hey, you know, would you be up for answering some questions here? Um, and so, um, and so other, you know, hosting like barbecues and free food, um, and, and not requiring people to answer questions to get to get free food, but just inviting people to share. But I think the other thing that we've done is that we um, often will, you know, my job as a consultant is to translate information. Um, I don't, I, I'm not the expert. It's my job to seek out the experts. And so we, um, we engage in a lot of where we'll actually subcontract um, 
I've, I've built some really purposeful relationships with like grassroots activists and organizers where they're a part of my team and I pay them. Often I pay them to just do the community work that they're already doing um, and to invest in their community work um, because they have those relationships and they're not researchers. They're not consultants. That's not their background. They're community activists. They're housing activists or anti-homeless homeless activists. Um, but recognizing that value that their relationships are what they're bringing. Um, but then we also um, often we're not the best, I'm not the best positioned person to be like hosting a discussion. And so instead I'm gonna go out and I'm gonna hire someone, pay someone who has experience of houselessness either currently or in the past to collect that information. And yeah, I'll give them a sort of a guide, right? Here's, here's a couple of questions we'd like you to ask, but you also probably know what the best questions are to ask. So we're actually just gonna trust you to do that. Um, and then bringing that information and that allows some anonymity as well. Whereas I think people often assume that like, oh no, no, we're, you know, like it'll, we'll maintain anonymity or confidentiality. But I think so much people who, who are impacted by poverty and houselessness um, have been, um, uh, have been like screwed over for when they're told that it's going to be anonymous and then it's not. And all of a sudden they've lost their benefits. But I think the last thing that we do is we often pay people not in money, but we, we ask them what things they might need because that helps in, you know, so rather than providing a $20 gift card or a $20, you know, um, $20 cash, um, we'll say, we will say, you know, can we buy you, you know, tell us what pair of pants you want to buy or, and we'll go out and purchase those things and compensate people that way because it doesn't impact people's um, uh, like benefits, right. Or, or unemployment or other pieces like that. So I think trying to get creative about those things um, is, is an important part of like meeting people where they're at. Well, it sounds like you're doing a lot of listening to actually, <laughs> which, uh, which is good. Um, and involvement uh, and, you know, you're talking about trust there too, right? So many people have been burned, um, so the trust uh, isn't there. And in most, like in many cases, because people have been involved in uh, coming out of care and the people that have, were supposed to care about them the most did not. So there's yeah. some real trust issues there for sure. Um, often when we do, so, so I'll tell you about, uh, in York region, we had not one but two um, awesome research projects around the needs of 2S LGBTQ plus youth. One from Seneca College, which was wonderful and kind of told us that uh, individuals didn't feel safe in the current spaces that were available um, and, and needed specific supports that weren't available and staff that knew they you know, just had a knowledge base. And then uh, the wonderful Alex, Dr. Alex Abramovich did another research project and it told us uh, many similar things and some new things. And, and you know, we, we I, I said to him, I remember saying to my team, like, how many research, like, how much data do we need before we take action? Like, this is great to sit on a shelf. No. So we took action without funding. And thankfully, we've got some great funders who stepped up. And we now have a housing program called Inclusion for 2S LGBTQ plus youth. Uh, that's a transitional housing program. It's, it's wonderful. It's great. And then we were able to buy the house. So it's there. Um, and I'll tell you, for people who don't think uh, homophobia and transphobia <laughs> exist still, we, um, we were trying to rent a house without really people knowing. Um, it took us a year to find a house and a landlord that would rent, and we were willing to pay a year in advance rent. So alive and well, unfortunately. Now, I tell you about that program because I know you were involved uh, in something called the Colorful Campus Housing Program 
uh, University of Regina. Uh, talk to me about that program and why is it important to have programs like our inclusion in, in uh, the program, uh, Colorful Canvas Housing Program? Yeah, well, I mean, I think that that, that program, um, I started that program when I worked at, when I was the executive director of UR Pride Center, which was an organization that, uh, it was a 2SLGBTQ human service agency that provided support both on campus at the university as well as just in community. Um, and so that was part of our campus programming. And part of it was started from my own experience living on campus in campus housing as a queer and non-binary person. Um, but I think it was really about knowing that it was scary for incoming students who maybe uh were coming from a place that was inclusive, right, from their home or uh, and into a potentially uninclusive place, or people who were coming from, a, um, you know, a, a, a home that was not safe, um, coming into potentially a new home that was also not safe. And so we worked with, you know, I approached the University of Regina at the time and said, this is what I want to do. And because we know that LGBT young people um, are more likely to be living in poverty, we also want to provide them subsidized housing. And so our initial, my initial proposal to the university was, we're going to put some money behind this. We want to rent from you, we'll pay the full rate, and then we'll, um, we'll sort of charge a lower rate to the people that we sublet to. And the university uh, at that time, um, I, I, it was actually pretty incredible. I didn't expect it. They actually said, well, no, we don't want you to spend your own money. Let's just, we'll provide everybody who's accepted into that housing with a, with a housing bursary. And so then they provided um, a $1,000 housing bursary to everybody who was accepted into that housing unit. Um, but we talked about a lot of things. I mean, like, I remember when we were talking about where the housing would be, they wanted to put it in, um, in a building that shared space with the police college. And the question was, we know that a lot of LGBT people have experienced police violence. Um, how do you feel about that? And do we need to find another place? We talked about, you know, do we want people to know where that, you know, where the unit is? Because that's potentially like out, you know, people might be outed or. And so there was, I think, some deep consideration from the university, but also some some sort of advocacy on, on our part. And so we were able to um, provide that safe housing to university students. But I also want to sort of recognize that I think, you know, there's other and where I'm, where I live, usually in Regina, Saskatchewan now, um, and in Saskatchewan, there are two really phenomenal um, programs operating um, to support LGBTQ young people. One of those is Lulu's Lodge in Regina, Saskatchewan, which is run by the John Howard Society, um, and it's a group home for um, young people, young LGBTQ people. Um, and then there's also the Pride Home in Saskatoon, which I actually think was, I think, the, one of the first um, LGBTQ youth group homes in Canada. And those two programs are chronically underfunded. Um, they're not supported very well by provincial government. Um, and they mostly rely on donations and fundraising. But um, and so those, pro I want to sort of give a shout out to the folks doing that work, you know, at both John Howard Society and out Saskatoon. Um, but what was really interesting is that, you know, Ivy, at Ivy and Dean, we recently did a consultation um, with LGBT people living in the city of Regina. And one of the things that we heard from them was that 
it's really great that housing programs for young LGBT people exist, but we're seeing a gap for LGBT adults um, where they can't find safe and affordable housing. Um, and, and so that work, and I think that that work now is sort of being looked at by organizations doing work around house, houselessness in Regina. Um, but that's still, I think, a, a big gap where we're seeing a lot of, because I think it's easy to want to fund young people. Um, I mean, easy is maybe too, too much of a word, but I think um, funders uh, and even donors, I think can, under, well, you know, it's not that child's fault that their house, you know, that they're homeless. But I think that often when we think about adults, um, there's sort of this like deserving versus undeserving poor and, um, and people are, I think, less interested in giving or supporting adult housing programs in the same way. And so I do think that that's one of the major gaps across the country right now is housing for um, LGBT people who experience houselessness. Yeah, and I would agree. It's interesting, aside from the 2S LGBTQ plus communities, uh, when you talk about adults, but even men, right? So in, in the region of York, um, in the past 20 years, has been wonderful um, because they've built like a new, first they started with the family emergency housing program, right? Perfect. People had no problem with it. Well, it was not no problem, but it was easier. And then a female and then uh, a youth. But when it comes to men, that's the last one. I mean, people are going berserk, right? Because uh, man, homeless will their own fault. Is there to, to your, you know, to your, your point there? Um, yeah. Well, and I think that so much of that is also tied to sexism, right? Around just, like this idea of like, well, men should be providing, right? And 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 all without recognizing necessarily how much uh, men, particularly like Indigenous men and men of color and men with disabilities, are really impacted by the same systems Huge. that oppress other people at risk of houselessness. Uh, absolutely and well said. Now, listen, I, you know, we, uh, I, I'm in, uh, I'm in Toronto as we speak. And last uh, weekend, we had Pride Parade here. It is a massive parade and you see the support. It's incredible. And you see the support. We talked about Yellowknife had their first, it was small, but the first awesome parade, right? Uh, in York region, we have one, it's well attended. So you see this groundswell of support. It's beautiful. It's amazing across the country, which might lead people to say, well, you know, it's advocacy still needed. We still need to keep working forward. Um, and at the same time, as I say that, we see what's happening in the U.S. and some parts of Canada uh, with, with the hate kind of uh, that, that seems to be growing as well. And we saw in, in York region made national news that a uh, school board would not raise yeah. the pride flag at their, their head office, right? With this kind of happening, what are your, your thoughts around that? Why, why do you think this is happening? And, and what can we do? What needs to be done? Uh, yeah. Continue? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I mean, and, and people off, you know, I think six months ago, Canadian LGBTQ activists were seeing what was happening in the United States in states like Florida, or Texas, um, or uh, where we were seeing sort of these, um, you know, this, these like don't say gay bills, right, that sort of limit the rights for teachers to talk about LGBTQ people in schools. Um, we saw like bans on, we saw in, I think it was Texas, where the child welfare uh, workers were instructed by the governor to look for to like go into files and find parents of trans people, of trans children to remove trans children from their homes. Um, we saw Florida recently like banning um, or making efforts to ban. Um, I think that there's some sort of constitutional challenges on that, but 
trying to ban like gender affirming healthcare for not only for children, they at, they were adamant that it was only about children. Well, now it's about adults too. And LGBT people in Canada and across the world knew that that was going to happen. But I think we, and we've all sort of, and I would say probably for even longer than that, like it's been years that I've been hearing trans, particularly trans women in Canada sounding the alarm of like, Hey guys, like I'm scared about my rights and sort of nobody's listening. Um, and, but yeah, sort of, you know, I remember six months ago talking about like, this is going to come to Canada. We need to get ready. And sure enough, our, the premier of New Brunswick just recently, um, you know, said, uh, and said a lot of things in their legislative assembly, um, that were like quoted directly from American politicians and American lobbying groups that, whose goals are um, to uh, limit rights of LGBT people and to eliminate LGBT people from existence. And I think, and I say that that was their goal, but in actuality, I think the goal, the larger goal here and why we're seeing so much anti-LGBTQ rhetoric and, and, and legislation is because of the rise of fascism. And, and that feels alarmist and that sounds, you know, um, that maybe sounds overblown, but it's not like there is a direct link between fascism, anti-Semitism, uh, anti-rate, like, uh, again, between racism and homophobia and transphobia. And that's why when we look at the history, and I think Laverne Cox, um, an activist in the United States recently spoke about this on a, on a talk show. She explained that like, that during um, when the Nazis rose to power in Germany, one of the first things they did was they burned Magnus Hirschfeld's clinic, which was in the 19, you know, in the early 1900s, there was more research and information about LGBTQ people, particularly trans people. That was the largest repository of that information and it all disappeared. And that was because when we look at the way that's, that, that sort of state states, uh, or people try to control the populace. We control people by telling them what they can do in their homes, by telling them what they can do at work or out in public. But um, if people, if you know, if if they're being controlled at home and in public and in school and at work, the one beacon of hope of control that they have is about their own bodies and about their own experiences and their own identities. And so then there's also a goal to control that too. And so I think that at the at its core, this is about an attack on controlling the way that people express themselves. And I think that it's important while I think that we should just care about that because LGBT people, particularly trans people, are just like human beings who deserve protection. Um, I also think that, you know, if if people believe that that the ways that they express that that they ways that they express themselves are gonna be left untouched, like that's not what's going to happen. This is going to get bigger and it's going to snowball. And once trans people, once they successfully eliminate trans people from the public view, there will be other people impacted by that. And there's going to be, um, and I think right now, LGBTQ communities, especially transgender women, are being used as a political wedge and a, and a tool to win elections. And we're seeing that, I mean, you know, Eight, eight or nine years ago, there was photos of Donald Trump carrying a pride flag. Um, you're not going to see that now because he knows 
and his people know that the way to win an election is to find a community and demonize them. And I think that LGBTQ people, particularly trans women, um, and particularly transgender women of color, um, are sort of an easy target in that way. Um, and we're seeing the the rhetoric around, you know, calling LGBT people pedophiles or groomers or all of these things. Like that was rhetoric we were hearing 30 years ago, and it's coming back. Um, and that was on, then that's on purpose. And like people are people are organized about that. Um, and I think that that's really scary. Yeah, I mean, I think that the rise of saying everything like it's the truth without any facts or right information behind it, unfortunately, is uh, is on the rise. And it's so true, uh, throwing those terms around and people just that we're sound by culture. It, it's it's, uh, it's really uh, shameful. And we see that. And it's up to, uh, you know, all of us as community members to really to rise and push and be advocates like yourself. Uh, so it's so important that, the, that you continue the work that you do. We're so grateful for it. Thank you for your time today for educating us. If people want to find out more about you, about uh, Ivy and Dean, uh, where can they go? Yeah, well, folks um, are welcome to find me to find us on LinkedIn. Uh, if you're if you're into business, Facebook, you can check us out there. Um, but uh, you can also uh, we're on Instagram. Uh, you can find me on Instagram at just Jack Bross at Jack Brosser on Instagram, um, or Ivy Dean Works is my company. Um, and uh, we're we're also on Twitter, although Twitter is being harder and harder to be on uh, as an LGBT person nowadays, as we're seeing this rise in hate. So um, I'm not there as much anymore. But if you're interested, and I mostly tweet about education and because um, of the work that I do around uh, around education in Saskatchewan. But um, I invite people to check us out. And you can, of course, always find us online at um, at IvyDeanConsulting.ca. Awesome. Listen, this podcast. You know, when we first were talking to Jack, he said, look, I'm not professing to be, you know, expert on housing homelessness or to us LGBTQ plus homelessness. And, but this podcast is primarily around education awareness because we believe more people know and they get the right information, the more they can grow and spread that word and, and things can change. Thank you for creating that education awareness today and for doing that every day in the work you do. It's so appreciated. Well, thank you so much. I think that resources like this, as we're talking more critically about, about housing and homelessness is so important um, to get more people to recognize that this is a joint effort. And if we want to put an end to houselessness and homelessness, we all have responsibility in that. And so I think that resources like this and opportunities for people to learn in like an accessible way are so important. So I, I was really honored to be involved and, um, and I'm, I'm, happy uh, uh i'm happy to to come back if ever there's an opportunity to chat more about about these conversations absolutely jack thank you so much for your time today we'll chat thank soon you so much michael I'm Andrea Askowitz. And I'm Allison Langer. And we are the hosts of Writing Class Radio, a podcast, but we are so much more. We have writing classes. So if you are looking for live online classes where you can join a community, write to a prompt, get feedback, and get better, check out all our classes at writingclassradio.com. And listen to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and at writingclassradio.com. 
produced by Cryer Media and distributed by the Sound Off Media Company.